How did today's right originate in 1950s Texas and 1930s California? One of our favorite guests, Sam Tannenhaus, joins us to talk about two new books, Nut Country and Right Out of California. If you look closely at the coalition of moderate conservatives and ultra-conservatives, you will see a lot of the kind of worldview that we look at today, that we find today in American politics. Why is breastfeeding such a loaded issue? Lori Gottlieb will talk about her review of lactivism. There's so many other things that are higher on the list and way higher on the list that, that will help our children in both the short term and the long term than breast milk. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. And Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. One of our favorite guests ever joins us now, Sam Tannenhaus, former host of the New York Times Book Review podcast, former editor of the New York Times Book Review, and this week, reviewer of two new books, Nut Country and Right Out of California. Welcome back, Sam. Hey, Pamela. Always great to be with you. All right. Um, So the two books I should give their full subtitles are Nut Country, Right Wing Dallas, and the Birth of the Southern Strategy by Edward H. Miller, and Right Out of California, The 1930s and the Big Business Roots of Modern Conservatism by Catherine S. Olmsted. Tell us about the two books. Well, they're both interesting, well-researched, well-written slices of what's becoming the ever-larger pie of conservative history. A geek like me who reads this stuff and uses it for his own work is really impressed that a lot of historians are coming along, including someone like Catherine Olmsted, who's actually comes out of the left and looking very closely at American conservatism in its formative years. So Edward Miller goes back to Dallas and more broadly Texas in the 1950s mm-hmm. and says, if you look closely at what he calls the coalition of moderate conservatives and ultra-conservatives, you will see a lot of the kind of worldview that we look at today, that we find today in American politics. So the ultras are people that are like extremists, the ones who say not only, this is 1950s, are the Soviets about to take over the United States, but your neighbor who voted for a Democrat is in the vanguard of the revolution. Right. Because he or she thinks integration might be an okay thing, racial integration. Then in California, what you have is these early labor struggles in the 1930s. We're most familiar with them through the novels of John Steinbeck, uh, The Grapes of Wrath, and an earlier one, which is Obama's favorite Steinbeck novel, In Dubious Battle, which actually figures in Olmsted's narrative. And what that is about is how what we would assume to be fairly normal labor protests by migrant workers, many of them immigrants from Mexico but also from Asia, were just asking to get paid like 25 cents an hour like everybody else instead of 10 cents an hour Mm -hmm. when they worked on these gigantic agri-farms, agribusiness farms called factories in the fields. And amazingly, what Olmsted makes you see is there was almost no protection for these uh, union workers. They were excluded from Roosevelt's New Deal for reasons that go back to the 
bargains he made with the Deep South, where they wanted plantation workers basically to work under the old system. And she shows you how the repression of these strikers was like brutally violent and Hmm. came from the top of the society, came from politicians, from lawmakers, from judges, newspapers like the Los Angeles Times. Their anxiety about striking workers is the beginning of that real distrust of what later became called big labor that drove a lot of conservatism and still does. So they were excluded from FDR's New Deal. Were the people who were doing that lobbying, were they Democrats at that time? Were they Republicans? How did that... Well, their defenders were basically communists, organizers, wobblies, if you remember them, old socialist labor organizers, including a young woman she writes about at great length who was tremendously kind of a Rosie the Riveter of the communist movement, who was very bold and brave. Her name was Decker. Olmsted shows you how like, her testimony would be in public hearings wouldn't even be transcribed because she was a woman, this sort of thing. So the New Deal finally moved in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Some of their administrators kept an eye on it and they said, we have to help. Right. Them. But the people who were lobbying the you know, FDR to, to keep these people out of that, were they Democrats at that time? Were they Republicans? They were Republicans mainly. In fact, the big thinker behind a lot of this was the exiled ex-president Herbert Hoover, who had this mansion and Olmsted's good on this, that overlooked Stanford University, essentially created Stanford University, went there and then built it up to this huge thing. And he was really bitter about his loss to Roosevelt and thought Roosevelt was leading the country into socialism and, as I say in the piece, would bankrupt the people's savings and also their character. And so he was issuing the warning that this is socialism at home. We've got to do something about it. So it was kind of mainstream Republicans pulled right by these very powerful corporate farm owners. They would own like a a farm that spread into 10 states. And so that's who was lobbying against it. And their fear was give them a nickel and before you know it, they're taking over your backyard, this kind of thing. Treat them like racially inferior foreigners, something we're hearing a little bit about today. And just to be fair, Uh, because we're talking so much about California. The Texas book has really fascinating material on H.L. Hunt, who was in this period, the 1950s, said to be the richest man in the world. And his money came from oil. Oil billionaire. Yes, what he'd done was to buy up some leases in the 1930s that turned out to be hugely valuable. And he was one of these very wealthy people, we see them around today, who think they're being taxed to death and that taxation is is the beginning, the root of all evil. So he created a kind of Rupert Murdoch plus Koch brothers style empire that was really media driven. He had a newspaper, he had a radio program, he had traveling libraries of books. You know, these are the old days when people read books. Was he a libertarian, essentially? He was a libertarian plus what uh, Miller calls a millenarian. I mean, he was apocalyptic. He thought the world was going to blow up. But first we'd be taxed. (laughs) First the oil depletion allowance would go and then all hell would break loose. Right. But, Pamela, it tapped into cultural stuff. Both these books are about that. The Brown v. Board decision, school board decision, was made in 1954. Texas was part of the old Confederacy. It's a lot about race. A lot about race. 
Olmsted's picture of California is a little more complicated. Well, it was a lot about Mexicans, wasn't it, too? It, it's, Mex- it's a lot about Mexicans. The problem is the racism permeated the entire culture and went across the spectrum. She has really good pages on how Steinbeck's Okies were really Mexican migrants. Mm -hmm. But Steinbeck, the impassioned New Deal Democrat, turned them into white people because that would be more palatable to his audience. And in fact, you made the case better by saying, look what they're doing to these poor whites who come from old American stock, rather than if you say, it's Filipinos, it's Mexicans, it's Japanese, it's Chinese. Nobody really wants to hear that. So in a way, he contributed to this racial That's anxiety. really fascinating to yeah. imagine if he had written about those people as Mexicans and how different those novels would have been and the reception of them. Well, it's interesting because his first real success was a novel – I don't know if it's much read anymore, called Tortilla Flat, which was about Mexicans in Monterey, you know, where he was from. But once he decided to write the big social novel, then, yes, it had it had to be white people. We tend to think of conservatism today as fractured, as having these very, very different components, the sort of pro-business, the libertarian, the social conservatism. But it sounds like looking at these two books right out of California and Nut Country, that all of those strains have very deep roots. And they do, in some times and places, coalesce into a movement. That's where we see Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan. Now it's being sifted through in this election. One of the things I'm grateful to Edward Miller for is um, he cites an article by Theodore H. White that appeared in The Reporter, a now-defunct magazine. It was a bi-weekly, I think, liberal publication, very well reported. It was almost like a forerunner of what we think of now when we look at some of the really good web publications. White wrote a two-part essay in 1954 called Texas, Land of Wealth and Fear. And there's a great phrase in it he uses, the unrecognized third party in America. That unrecognized third party essentially consists of people who think the Republican establishment sold them out. And that goes That sounds familiar. Very familiar. There was a specific moment, by the way, when that happened. It was when Eisenhower, believe it or not, took office in 1953. There had been 20 years of Democratic presidents, what Joe McCarthy called 20 years of treason. And hardcore, what were then called old guard Republicans, mainly from the Midwest, thought, okay, our guy's in office, we roll back the New Deal, and we go back to being isolationists again. Instead of giving foreign aid to socialist governments in Europe, we're going to go communist anyway, and if we want to fight a war, we can cut back all the expenses and just build an air force and carpet bomb the Soviet Union, which will also sound familiar. That was the fissure that split the party because Eisenhower didn't do any of that. Instead, he essentially codified or institutionalized the New Deal internationalist, diplomacy-driven politics. Mm -hmm. He kept us in the center, in the kind of liberal consensus center. And that's when the revolt began, and it resurfaces with each new election cycle. So looking at the current election cycle, um, another thing that people often say is, well, this is just the extremism is new, that it's never been this extreme. Is that true? No, it's not true at all. White, in his quite brilliant uh, articles, does a summary of what the 
third-party ideology consists of. The language is always harsh, always implies treason and betrayal. Mm -hmm. When we hear Chris Christie say, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton betrayed us, or when Ted Cruz says, Barack Obama won't even speak the name of evil. He won't utter the words radical Islam. This is exactly what hardline anti-communists said about Democrats and even a centrist Republican like Eisenhower back in the 1950s. They also talked about race in ways that would astonish you today. This is one way in which we've actually made a little progress. There were preachers standing in the pulpit in Dallas in megachurches saying integration is a sin that is being visited upon us by radical communists. God wants the races kept apart. They weren't even just saying, well, we're not sure we want the government writing laws. They were just espousing outright racism in very lurid tones. Mm -hmm. And Olmsted has that too. Langston Hughes was kind of a marginal figure, kind of drifted in and out. Not marginal in the sense of being unrecognized. He was a hugely established, famous, brilliant writer. But he was ever radical and he was on the edges of all this stuff in California. And she quotes newspaper commentary about him that you would never see like in the most extreme right wing Mm -hmm. um, website now, only in the white supremacist website. You know, who is this colored man who who was seen touching a white woman? This is like running in regular newspapers. It's surprising, I guess, really, is that it was California and not the, the South where it might be more expected. Well, you come to a really important point, which I think I mentioned in the piece. We've had four Republican presidents elected since 1960. Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, both from California, and the two Bushes, George, father and son, both from Texas. And one reason is a lot of Southern or Sunbelt ideology worked into those states. Mm -hmm. So there was always a very conservative contingent. What we've seen in our own lifetime in the past generation is California become maybe the most liberal state in the union. But a a geezer like me remembers when California was the home of the John Birch Society Mm -hmm. and the most extreme conservatism. So um, There are still pockets of of real conservatism out in California. Absolutely. Orange County, where Nixon was from, remains very conservative. Uh, The sort of San Diego uh, was a, a real citadel of John Birch Society, which is real extreme nativist Americanism, you know, going up through the 70s and 80s. No, it's it's there for sure. Well, so California today is more Democrat than Republican um, as it was in its origins. But it, it flipped with uh, with Texas, right? Because Texas used to be very solidly Democrat. John Tower, conservative Republican, was the first Republican elected to the Senate from Texas in 1961, I think it was a special election, since Reconstruction. It was a totally Democratic state. It was the state of Lyndon Johnson, right, and of Sam Rayburn, who were the most powerful legislators through much of the New Deal all the way up through the 50s. It was Democratic, but, Pamela, the Democratic Party looked different then. It had a Southern wing. So LBJ was was a kind of transitional figure who was kind of mildly pro-civil rights and then embraced it later. He led the the fight to get the very first much watered down civil rights legislation passed when he was in the Senate in 1957 and then became, you know, the hero of civil rights. That happened 
simultaneously mm-hmm. with the state itself becoming more conservative. That's another thing Miller helps you see. And what happened was essentially the conservative wing of the Democratic Party became Republicans, which is what we also see in the Deep South. What used to be the Dixiecrats, the states' rights Southerners, are now Republicans. So looking at the current election again, which you've written quite a bit about, um, and these two books, Right Out of California and Nut Country, what can readers learn from these two books uh, that would give them insight into what's going on? Well, it's kind of a good news, bad news thing. The good news is things have actually gotten better in some ways. I mean, We have this remarkable effusion or explosion of intense anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim sentiment right now. But what happens when it's said in the most extreme way by Donald Trump? Even the other Republicans get nervous and try to pull him back. So in that sense, it's gotten better. The maybe not so good news is these general tensions that kind of implicit accusation that liberals and Democrats are basically traitors is not going away. Mm -hmm. It's going to be with us forever because it really reflects a different worldview. And I think that's where a lot of us get confused. I may write something about this. Conservatism really does come out of a philosophy that if you take it at its highest level, mm-hmm. the theorists, the Leo Strausses and people like that, really is profoundly different from liberalism. It has a different set of values. And they have to do with a kind of um, almost mystical belief in the power of, of old American identity You know that derives from the Constitution and all the rest. And when it's done in its most... Uh, serious-minded and um, detached way, that is, when it's not ad hominem, it's quite extraordinary. It makes you realize there are these openings in, in American society and government that are different from what we experience day to day. But it also can get reduced basically into the charge of treason. Right. And um, that's with us now. It helps to go back all these years and see how it was dealt with. You know, when people talk about liberalism, people will distinguish between, you know, small L liberalism, old school liberalism, getting back to the philosophical roots of liberalism. They don't do that as often with conservatism, but it sounds like they should. They should. Conservatives themselves will, but liberals tend not to do it. You know, John Podhoritz, uh, the journalist, editor of Commentary, who, as you probably know, is a very lively presence on Twitter, likes to say when he's having a little tussle with a liberal, he'll say, I can talk liberal, but you can't talk conservative. And he has a point that there's a vocabulary, a language, and a set of values and beliefs that actually many of us do subscribe to the power of tradition, belief in family, in community, all these ideas. And and a great writer and thinker like Christopher Lash, you know, who started off on the left, eventually came around to this idea of conservatism. Um, We don't hear a lot of it, and it gets harder to find. I even see that in publications like National Review or The Weekly Standard, there's less interest than there used to be in the founders of the movement, in the big ideas they had, you know, the Buckleys and Whitaker Chamberses and James Burnhams, who, who were these extraordinary thinkers and um, impassioned moralists, you know. 
and that has faded away a little bit. You know, as media itself has become more driven by social media, as we know, and also by cable television, and it's the debating and the shouting, we lose a little bit of that texture. What listeners can always do, listeners to this podcast, is go on YouTube and dig up Bill Buckley's firing lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you'll hear a lot of it then, where there's argument from first principles, isn't what we're talking about really an older style of liberalism? As you say, small L liberalism, which is really about the individual. I think there are probably many people who consider themselves liberal Democrats who don't know what to make, say, of the campus eruptions now. Or it's like classic liberalism versus contemporary liberalism. There's a kind of classic conservatism versus. Yes, that's right. And that classic conservatism is often driven by religion. That's the Whitaker Chamber side. And also by uh, a kind of uh, sense that there's always a battle to be fought, that all your liberty is in danger. I think that's what some of it comes from. And you can find some of that in Lincoln, you know. And so there are strong traditions there, and they get lost just the way a lot of the highest liberal ideals get lost. Sam Tannenhaus, someone who can talk both conservatism and liberalism very well. Always a pleasure to have you, Sam. Thank you, Pamela. The books again are Nut Country, Right Wing Dallas and the Birth of the Southern Strategy by Edward H. Miller and Right Out of California, the 1930s and the Big Business Roots of Modern Conservatism by Catherine S. Olmsted. Alexandra Alter joins me now to talk about what's going on in the literary world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So I don't know if we can use the word literary, actually, in this case. What are we talking about? Well, literary might be a stretch. So a little poetry book came out this week that might have escaped your notice. It's called Bard of the Deal, the Poetry of Donald Trump. And, of course, it's a spoof book, um, but it's pretty clever because it uses Trump's own words from speeches and interviews and turns them into verse. And the writer who compiled it is um, a humor writer, Hart Seeley, who has kind of carved out this little niche for himself. He also wrote Pieces of Intelligence, the Existential Poetry of Donald Rumsfeld. So I do have a sample poem here if you're interested. It's um, Donald Trump talking about the Freedom Tower. Worst pile of crap architecture I've ever seen the terrorists win, it's that bad. That's, so that's beautiful. What as, <laughs> that's what counts as a poem from Donald Trump. And of course, you know, this joke books aside, um, with an election year coming up, bookstores have been absolutely flooded with books by the presidential candidates. Mostly and over poetry? In few months, there's been kind of a parallel race taking place as presidential candidates are trying to find people to buy their books. You know, it's kind of an informal requirement at this point for serious candidates to publish books about themselves and their vision for the country. So uh, a few people have been kind of crunching the numbers and figuring out who's winning the the race for readers. A few weeks ago, Time Magazine ranked all the candidates based on how well their books were selling, and it doesn't necessarily parallel what you're seeing in the polls. Donald Trump, who's been leading in many of the polls, is actually ranked behind Ben Carson, Mike Huckabee, and Ted Cruz, according to book sales. And if you're looking at the entire race, including Democrats, Hillary Clinton is by far the winner in terms of book sales. Which would you recommend as your stocking stuffer of the season? Great question. So it depends on, I suppose, if you if you like poetry and if you like Donald Trump, perhaps um, Bard of the Deal. But again, I don't think many of these books are necessarily meant to be inspirational reads. Probably uh, readers would be better to wait for 
the kind of postmortem, the the memoirs that come out after you know the candidates are elected and leave office. Those are often the most popular and the most candid. These are almost kind of glorified policy brochures. So you're saying go for the Donald Trump coloring book instead? That would probably be a good guess, yeah. All right. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks, Pamela. Lori Gottlieb joins us now. She writes about a new book called Lactivism, How Feminists and Fundamentalists, Hippies and Yuppies and Physicians and Politicians Made Breastfeeding Big Business and Bad Policy by Courtney Jung. Hi, Lori. Hi there. So this is a contrarian kind of uh, argument book, I take it. It seems like it would be, but she's not really taking a stance on whether or not people should breastfeed. And I think that that's really the important message of the book that she's looking at whether the research on the benefits of breastfeeding pan out. And she does a lot of of reporting on this and really surprises us with what she finds. What does she find? Well, I think that a lot of the reasons that people say that they breastfeed have to do with what the science says. People say, well, it's better for the baby. It has all of these medical benefits, both in the short term and the long term. And she goes through a lot of the the medical research and looks at what the story really is. And I think that that part is fascinating. But but more than that, I think what I took away from the book was really the the social and ethical implications of breastfeeding, the way that our culture looks at it, the way that our culture looks at people who don't breastfeed, you know, how a lot of different forces, whether it's um, political, social, moral, um, come together and really make women feel like the only thing that they should be doing is breastfeeding. Does she have a point of view? Does it come across in the book? She actually breastfed both of her kids for for quite a long time. So she's not anti-breastfeeding. You know, it's so interesting to hear that because anytime somebody writes something that is either or is perceived as anti-breastfeeding, the assumption is like, oh, so you couldn't do it, huh? Or you didn't do it. Right, right. And it's almost like, you know, it differentiates the good parents from the bad parents. And so, you know, you would think that somebody who wrote a book like this would be trying to justify their own choice not to breastfeed. But in fact, she did breastfeed and she enjoyed breastfeeding. She's certainly not one of these people who who says women should not breastfeed. She's just saying, why do we have so much um, debate over this topic? Why can't women have a choice? If, if breastfeeding is supposed to be this choice, why don't we have the choice not to breastfeed as well? And, and there really is a lot of shame for women who don't breastfeed. They have to justify it by saying, you know, if they don't produce enough milk, we, we, we pity them. Oh, poor you. Look, your child's going to be at a disadvantage. You are unable to be an adequate mother. Your sort of your own body, your own biology was not up to the task, seems to be an important right. message. There's, e- there's even a term for that. It's called lactation failure, which is <laughs> a little bit humiliating in and of itself. One of the more interesting points, too, in the book is that what's being promoted is breast milk, not necessarily breastfeeding. So when we talk about the benefits of, of breastfeeding, what, what people are really talking about is the benefit are the benefits of breast milk and, and pumping. And so a lot of people then are having other people feed their babies, you know, with their breast milk. And, and that's fine, too. But 
then we get into the whole question of well what is the benefit really is it, is it more important that you're that you're more present for bath time and for that cuddling time with your baby but you're formula feeding them or is it more important that you're giving them breast milk but you're not necessarily around as much and it's not it's not like those are the only two options but you know i think that we forget about the fact that what really does go into good parenting mm-hmm. is it that we're giving our, our kid breast milk or is it that we're we're attaching to our baby and i don't necessarily mean attachment parenting but that we're 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 there we're present we're bonding with our baby which is more important also as a therapist i have a lot of patients who are on antidepressants and they don't necessarily want to breastfeed with antidepressants in their system so they go off of the antidepressants and they're not really you know, the best version of themselves that they could be um, when they're feeling depressed. And it's really hard anyway when you're a new mother. But when you're a depressed new mother, it's extremely hard. So in those cases, they feel so much pressure to not be on their medication so that they can breastfeed, which again brings up a whole host of problems. What's interesting, too, though, about this whole attachment idea, and um, I feel like I should put my cards on the table as someone who also breastfed three kids and did that for a long time, but is that people are very um, adamant that fathers partake in the feeding process, and that really can only be done with a bottle and not um, obviously breastfeeding. Um, Although there's all kinds of equipment um, that they've created to kind of simulate that experience for fathers. Right. And and I think that brings up an interesting point too, because if you're, if you're pumping so that the dad can get involved, that's kind of okay that you're not feeding the baby. But if you're, if you're pumping so that, you know, some person who's not related to you is going to be feeding the baby, then people say, oh, she's not spending enough time with the baby, or is she being a good mom? And I think that's what this question really comes down to is what makes for a good parent and and what's good for the child? Uh, somehow we've decided that this liquid gold, as it's called, you know, kind of takes away any kind of guilt. So let's say that we're not doing all these other things. Maybe we're not reading to the baby at bedtime because we're not home, or maybe we're not, we're doing other things for our convenience. But as mm-hmm. long as you're giving them breast milk, that's okay. We have this idea that if a mother is doing something not only for her convenience, like using formula, but maybe even for her enjoyment, like she likes going to work, or she likes not having the, um, not pumping and not you know, having to breastfeed. What if she just likes that? Then you're a really bad mom because you're really choosing not to do this thing. In the book, In Lactivism, does Courtney Jung write about this also as a class issue? She does, absolutely. Um, She talks about, you know, Obama had put all these initiatives in place to promote pumping, not breastfeeding, but pumping, so that women could go to work because many women, most women, in fact, have to work. But in fact, when you look at, at what happens with these initiatives, if women want to pump, they don't get paid for the time that they're pumping. That's not part of what the regulations state. So they have to work an eight-hour day plus overtime in order to pump at work, which means that they're spending even less time at home with their babies. So they have to work longer hours for less pay. Mm-hmm. Often the conditions, even though you're supposed to have a place where you can pump, that could be a storage room. It could right. be anything. It sounds like, you know, oh, we're making it really easy for for women to give their children breast milk. But in fact, we're actually increasing the length of their work days. 
what she does in her subtitle, which I'll read again because it's long, is provide these very interesting contrasts. So the subtitle is How Feminists and Fundamentalists, Hippies and Yuppies, and Physicians and Politicians made breastfeeding big business and bad policy. So there are some strange bedfellows, feminists and fundamentalists. Where do they come in on the breastfeeding issue? The Christian conservatives view this as supporting traditional gender roles, right? So if if the woman is breastfeeding, then she's not going to be working. She's going to be at home with the baby. You know, liberals uh, look at this as, as freedom of choice. You know, we can breastfeed and we have the right to breastfeed in public and it should be this very natural thing and we're, we will defend our right to do this. Unfortunately, they're also not defending the right for people who choose not to do this. So you, so you have all of these different people. You have environmentalists who are saying, well, it's greener, it's good for the planet. You know, you have all of these different people coming together that normally disagree on almost every other issue, and they all say, you know, they all agree with breast is best. But when, when Jung actually looks at why do we say that, what's that about, there's not a lot to come up with to support that. It seems that, you know, like so many health studies, like fat is good, no fat is evil, that um, you read a lot of contradictory reports recently about breastfeeding, that for a long time it was all, oh, breastfeeding kids, you know, they're smarter, they have a better immune system, they have fewer allergies. But recently some studies have come out and said, actually, no. What, where does the research land? Does Jung talk about what the current consensus, if there is one, is? She does. And, and she, she goes through, you know, all of the studies that people have been citing in, in the media. And, and she looks at them and says, well, you know, how much validity is there to each of these things? When she talks to some of the physicians about this, most of them will say, yeah, you know, if there is a difference, and in, in many cases, there's not. But when there is, it's not really significant. Mm-hmm. And but I think that that's where the sort of just in case comes in as a parent, you know, well, well, just in case that 1% difference, you know, make some kind of difference for my child. I'm going to breastfeed for six months to a year or more so that my child may have that 1% advantage in life. And, and even things like, you know, when they talk about obesity and diabetes, it turns out the strongest predictor of the weight of a child is actually the weight of the mother. You know, that's something that, that has nothing to do with, you know, breast milk. So many of these things are either environmental or breastfeeding mothers now tend to be, um, tend to have more time for their babies. They tend to be of a higher social class. So those, you know, maybe they're reading more to their kids and maybe that's what part of the cognitive benefit is. But again, it's so slim that, you know, when you look at the price that that a lot of women have to pay, these are women who, you know, some women love breastfeeding and they really want to do that. and, And she supports that. But if you're somebody who it's really not something you want to do or you're not, not something you want to do exclusively or not something you want to do for any length of time, you don't have to feel terrible about it. Mm-hmm. There's no science to support, you know, that your child is going to turn out in any way differently than your child would if they were um, given breast milk. Lori, as a therapist, as a mother, as a woman who writes a lot about uh, these kinds of issues, you must have known a lot about this topic going into the book. What did you learn that was new or most surprising? You know, I think I saw women struggle with it from from my vantage point. So what I saw was women feeling like I need to breastfeed. I I feel like a bad mother for all these other reasons because we all feel like we're not doing enough or we're not doing the right things. And then on top of it was, and, you know, I'm going crazy trying to provide breast milk for my child. I think what what was surprising about this book was 
given how solid that that belief is in our culture right now, that there's so little to support that it's going to help in in any significant way, or even in any way, take away the word significant, um, that we go crazy over this thing. I mean, the part in the book where she talks about people, there's breast milk ice cream that sells for $20 a scoop. Um, I can't think of anything I want to think about eating less. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have these things called momsicles. You know, they have lactation lasagna. Um, that's sort of the, the insanity that's taken over. And again, for people who, who, who want to breastfeed, great, but why do we fetishize it? Why do we make it seem like that's, that's the thing that's going to give our kids this leg up in life? There's so many other things that are more important as a therapist, I can say, but also what, what she says in the book, and, and she has research to back this up, there's so many other things that are higher on the list and way higher on the list list that that will help our children in both the short term and the long term than breast milk. But we feel like, well, it doesn't really matter if we kind of screw up on all these other measures. As long as we're giving them breast milk, we're doing the right thing. And I think what was so fascinating about this book was it makes so little difference. We need to be focusing on so many other things, but certainly not whether we're giving our child formula or breast milk. All right. The title, very apt one, is Lactivism by Courtney Jung. Um, Subtitle is how feminists and fundamentalists, hippies and yuppies and physicians and politicians made breastfeeding big business and bad policy. Lori Gottlieb, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Greg Coles joins us now with Bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. So no news is the news. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's only one new book on either of the hardcover bestseller lists uh, this week, fiction or nonfiction. It is a novel by Dean Kuntz uh, called Ashley Bell, new at number 12 on the hardcover fiction list. But yeah, otherwise a very quiet week. All right, well, let's just take a few minutes now that everybody's settled down with their eggnog and their holiday uh, treats uh, to talk about the food and diet bestseller <laughs> book list. Just in uh, time for resolutions. That's right. That's right. <laughs> What's going on um, with food and diet books? The Pioneer Woman is going on with food and diet books. Uh, three of the top 10 titles are by Reed Drummond, uh, who is, she started out really as a blogger writing The Pioneer Woman. Uh, it was kind of about life on the frontier. Um, she moved with her husband, uh, who was a, a cowboy out in the Wild West, and she started um, keeping track of that. And it, it became partly a food blog, and she has now become kind of a one-woman industry writing these Pioneer Woman cookbooks. So uh, you've got the Pioneer Woman Cooks, Dinner Time, at number one. Then down at number nine, the Pioneer Woman Cooks, A Year of Holidays. And at number 10, the Pioneer Woman Cooks, you see where this is going, <laughs> Food from My Frontier. One of the things I love about the Food and Diet bestseller list is just the juxtaposition of things like at number six, 10-Day Green Smoothie Cleanse, <laughs> and at number seven, Thug Kitchen, which actually, despite its name, is vegan recipes. So maybe they're more alike than different. Yeah, um, Thug Kitchen, an- another blog online, and um, they curse like sailors. They um, are very proud of that. They say, you know, we we may be the uh, only blog out there that's going to bludgeon you into eating healthily. Um, Good recipes uh, in Thug Kitchen. I can't speak to the smoothie cleanse. (laughs) Well, I can speak to the food lab at number three, um, which is I think the most gorgeous and fascinating um, cookbook of the season, um, one to be read as well as cooked from. This is by J. Kenji Lopez Alt. And yeah, um, not just read, 
but gazed at. It's it's a book that's lavish with illustrations. And what's the premise? It kind of follows in the tracks of Cook's Illustrated, um, where it, it takes a very scientific-based approach to cooking. It looks at the science behind cooking, why why foods respond a certain way when you add acid. It's uh, looking at the kitchen as a laboratory, basically, and uh, the chemistry of cooking. For the scientist foodie on your Santa list. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Thank you.